That's the joke. That's the joke. Folks, this is no joke. This is the Always Be Watching podcast. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm joined, as always, by Chris Yates. On this week's show, we are talking about not just old movies. We've stopped doing that. We've decided enough of that guff. We're going to talk about brand new things that you might want to check out. So we're going to discuss the biggest movie on the planet on account of it being the only movie on the planet. It's called Tenet. We are going to discuss a couple of brand new Netflix shows. There's a documentary series. And look, this is a high level, deeply involved documentary about 1980s video games called High Score. Uh, we're also going to take a look at a German series called Biohackers, also streaming on Netflix. And then Chris Yates is going to liven this podcast up with a discussion into what I think that everyone is clamoring to know more about. It is the Disney Plus TV show that goes behind the scenes of the making of Frozen 2. It's called Into the Unknown. And look, I couldn't be more excited to hear about this. Could not be more excited. Folks, if you're as excited as I am, stick around. We'll be back right after this theme song. Guys, it's time to raise the roof. It is time for another Always Be Watching. My name, Dan Barrett, joined by Chris Yates, the man who puts the Q in QAnon. Sir, how the heck are you doing? <laughs> Jesus. Um, good. I think it's worthy of mentioning at this point that uh, you very rarely have vetoed anything I've suggested that I wanted to talk about. It's happened a couple of times that I can't remember what. But um, you've really tried to veto me talking about this um, Frozen 2 uh, making of series. Look, at no and, point um, did I say not to do it. I think I've just expressed my lack of enthusiasm about it. Yeah, well, I'm just, uh, that only made me want to present it to you even more. So I'm glad to get that opportunity. <laughs> ah, you son of a bitch. I should have sounded more enthusiastic. <laughs> exactly. I would have lost interest if you had have pretended you were interested. Indeed. Note for next time. Now, can I give you some interesting facts about the podcast, Chris? Because I was going through yes. the metrics of the podcast. Now, love I metrics. I love facts. Yeah, I don't remember the exact sort of um, date range on it, but our biggest audience, our biggest audience, Chris, are 24 through 32-year-olds. <laughs> That's interesting. I remember being 24 to 32. Yeah, so much hope, so much just optimism <laughs> about the world. It wasn't a great time, to be honest. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, life starts at 40, they say, Dan. So um, here I am. Yeah, look, Four I've heard good old. things. I've heard good things. Now, Chris, something that I've heard uh, like mostly good things about is the brand new Christopher Nolan movie, Tenet. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. Nuclear Holocaust. No. Something worse. Now, I've known you for a number of years. I can't anticipate any moment on the planet where you'd say, hey, look, I'm going to talk to the partner. I'm going to pack up the kids. Let's go off and see Tanner. I don't see that happening. But Chris, bear with me. We are going to talk about Tanner. Now, Christopher Nolan movies, here's the thing. And this is maybe what surprised me a little bit about some of the negative commentary I've heard about Tanner. People are like, oh, it's really cold. People don't really sort of seem human enough. There aren't really enough jokes. My question is, have you guys seen a Christopher Nolan movie? Like, this is probably Does the most it... on-brand Christopher Nolan movie I think I've ever seen. He made Batman, right? He made Batman. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even technically called Batman. It was Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. 
you may have seen some of his other films, uh, including The Prestige, Inception. Oh, yeah, I have seen The Prestige. I didn't know that was him. There you go. Yeah. Um, Inception, which is probably the most relevant one for this movie. Uh, also, Memento is probably another well-known Chris Nolan film. Uh, none of these movies are oozing with warmth and warm cuddles, are they? No, absolutely none of them. And so it seems like such a strange criticism to say that, hey, the new Christopher Nolan movie, it's a little bit cold. And it's like, well, he's a cold, detached British person. That's kind of what you're getting from them. Like, this is his bread and butter. And um, look, of all of his films, so you could probably look at, like, his last movie, uh, which was, uh, gosh, what was it called? It was the World War One, uh, Dunkirk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, you could look at Dunkirk and say that's probably, like, his most sort of pure film because, like, it's sort of really getting to, like, his Britishness and playing around with different timelines. So... That film took place across three different um, intersecting timelines and not not like in a sci-fi sort of a way, but really he just presented the story in three different timelines. And you sort of look at that and it's like, well, that sort of taps into everything that he's interested in because he likes playing around with linear structure of movies. But this is probably the most pure one that he's got in that he's actually really going into the linearness of his movies by playing around with ideas of science fiction with actual time travel involved. It starts as very light, uh, light tra time travel, but then as the film gets more and more involved, these time travel elements of it get more and more layered into it to a point where I think by the final act, everyone is incredibly confused by what's going on. And the sound mix on the film, which people are talking, but you can't quite understand what they're saying, that just confuses people even more. <laughs> and I have to say, I loved it. Um, I haven't seen it, obviously, but recently, this is relevant, Dan, recently hmm. I happened to chance across on i think it was even on broadcast television i watched this uh the 2014 science fiction film that he made called interstellar yes man that is a that's a weird that's a weird film look so i had this conversation i think on this very podcast where i was saying that christopher nolan movies because i was talking about the batman films that he made we, yeah i've watched a whole bunch of christopher nolan films on the tv and never really enjoyed them but i love them on the big screen like he's a big screen filmmaker and I have to say, like, Tenet, I can't imagine anyone watching this on a small screen because the joy of it is very much these James Bond-style sort of large vistas of, like, beautiful places that he's visiting mixed in with, like, just some really elaborate practical effects set pieces. And just thinking about the film Interstellar, one of the most beautiful scenes in that film is just this single shot of watching the spacecraft that they're in traveling through space and it's like this really small little spacecraft and you just see the vastness of space enveloping this thing and i'd imagine watching it on tv it's like eh, it's kind of okay but i saw it on a proper imax screen the biggest screen i think in the southern hemisphere at the time it's now rip but like just sitting in a cinema watching like this small little blip traveling across the screen and just like taking the vastness of space in it's just incredible um, friend of the podcast and my good friend Patrick McCabe, um, who is getting involved with the conversation stuff recently, was chatting to me about. Um, actually, I think it was even on the online on one of our various groups. I, I think um, believe saying, it was on the Always Be Watching Facebook group. Yeah, was saying that the Christopher Nolan films, when they do all the edits and everything, and when they watch back the little bits as it's getting made, they do all that in an actual cinema, which is unusual even for like big budget Hollywood standards. Is that right? Yeah. No, like I've heard him sort of playing around with like crazy things like that before. And that doesn't surprise me entirely. 
the thing about Interstellar was I was like as ridiculous and ludicrous and hard to follow. And yeah, you know, watching it on the TV, like definitely lose a lot of that stuff. I still quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Is that wrong? No, I don't think it's wrong. Like, I, here's the thing like, Interstellar is probably one of the films of his I've liked the least. The one I've definitely hated the most was The Prestige because it just got the dumbest ending that I think cinema's ever conjured up. Dumb. Yeah. Man. Electric clones, dude. But no, I liked it. I mean, you got Matthew McConaughey, so it's like, come on, I'm already <clears> half sold. Um, you don't have to do much more than just get him out there in a spaceship. But yeah, no, it was good. Anyway, I'm sorry for derailing your tenant chat. No, that's fine. I mean, it's kind of what tenant's all about. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I just had no, I, I didn't know anything about it going into it because I don't really pay attention to that stuff um, before it was getting released, I mean, not going into it. And then I was shocked to hear that it was going to be the film that was going to save cinema. And I'm like, oh, that's a weird name for that movie that's going to do all these great things and then um we're at the stage now right where we're not even sure is it going to get a release over or it's definitely getting a release in the states has it's, it already been released no it's definitely getting a release it just happened that australia got the first like we got the global release of it effectively because of the way that time zones work and we were one of the limited uh, yes. markets that actually got it first off so australia had it as a like preview screening last weekend so just on like saturday and sunday so yeah, i got right. along I was there at like the 10 a.m. session, so I would have been one of the first in the world to get to see it. And I was thinking as a film, which is going to effectively relaunch the idea of going back to the cinema for a lot of people, I looked around at the five other people that were in the theatre with me, and I thought, you know what, I'm not sure this film's necessarily going to do the business that Warner Brothers is hoping that it will. And it's a shame, because I really like this movie, and I kind of do hope that people get along to see it. And if you are a bit freaked out by the idea of going to the cinema at the moment, and fair enough, because, you know... Uh, just it's keep in mind that there are so few people in the cinema. Quite often you'll probably find that you're the only person in the cinema, as I found myself <laughs> the last couple of weeks. Um, small, like limited patronage, but also this is a film that's going to be playing on the bigger screens, like the VMAX screens. And if you're going to go and see a Christopher Nolan film, just go and see it on the bigger screen that you can. Like go and see it in the best presentation. Uh, so you can do that and you'll be able to see this for weeks and weeks on end because... There's no big movies coming out for a couple of weeks. Like the next big one is not this coming weekend, but next there's The New Mutants, which is not going to be a big film by any means. Like Tenet will still be playing on those big screens. So you've got time. I was wondering whether it actually would go the other way, especially in places like um, Sydney and Brisbane and stuff where we're actually allowed to leave the house. I was wondering whether that would have, uh, you know, people would have been inspired to go back and had a reason and, uh, or, or even just looking for an excuse, I think is what I'm, because that's kind of where I'm at now, where it's just like an excuse to get out of the house. I'll jump at it, not necessarily <laughs> to go to the movies. Um, but yeah, I was expecting a little bit more of that, but I mean, and I know it's only anecdotal that there wasn't many people in your cinema, but that's not, but it's not entirely anecdotal also, because it does represent, right? It's not entirely anecdotal in that if people subscribe to the Always Be Watching newsletter, I actually did sort of present some screen grabs I took of various... So I, I oh, was like screen grabbing various screen. cinemas around the place so that people could sort of see what was going on. I There's probably two cinemas in the Sydney sort of metro area that would be the highest uh, patronage of the movies coming out. Um, yep. So essentially you'd be looking at the, like the actual one in the middle of the city on George Street, because that one, even though it's a little bit awkward to get to and people don't really think about going to the city to go and see a movie, like it still packs out pretty well when there's a big film. Yep. Um, so you've got that. But then also I thought Bondi Junction, because the things to keep in mind with cinema attendance at the moment is that the people who are going to go to the movies are probably going to skew younger than is usually the case because I think older people are probably going to be a bit more reluctant to go out into a theatre sort of a setting like that. 
Uh, sure. But also Bondi Junction, it's an area that has a fairly sort of high income level to it. So it's not like people are going to be sort of too concerned about spending money on it, especially yeah. at a time where people are unemployed and there's like sort of greater sort of financial stresses around. But it struck me that Bondi Junction of all places would probably be where you actually find the cinema attendance. And so the sort of evening Saturday night sessions, they got close to selling out if it didn't actually sell out uh, by the time that, you know, the session rolled yeah. around. But yeah, I mean, there were definitely quite a few sessions throughout the day that were pretty empty. And selling out is still like well under capacity, right? Yeah. So if you're a single it. person going to an event cinema um, seating, so I tend to go to the movies by myself a fair bit. So if I'm sitting there, that means that my seat is the equivalent of seven seats. So they yeah, wow. space out the two seats to your left, the two seats to your right, the one in front of you, the one behind you, and the one that you're in. So that's seven. It sounds like the. It actually sounds like the perfect time to go to the cinema. Look, as far like if you're someone like me who doesn't <laughs> like a cinema audience, like it's amazing. Uh, look, it's basically ticking two big boxes for me. One, nobody's there, and two, there's just like a whole bunch of films which you know just older movies being played in a the theater for no apparent reason. So I went and saw yeah. The Untouchables, which is one of my favorite films. And I was the only person in the theater watching it. It was fantastic. I had like that this big recliner amazing. chair. It was grand. Uh, it's like they were doing it just for you. Well, they pretty much were. <laughs> was that the only screening of The Untouchables? It's a great film. I'm surprised that they didn't get a bit more of a retro. Uh, there were about four or five. But the thing is, The Untouchables does actually get a screening like every couple of months you'll find it playing around the place yeah. somewhere. So it's not it like it was a super cool. unusual thing. Yeah. But anyway, um, just did you get, did, oh, sorry. Sorry, Tenet. No, go did, did you have something relevant or interesting to throw out? Well, I was just going to ask you, you went and saw, did you say you went and saw Star Wars as well? Did you yeah, I did. See, so like, A New Hope? Every couple of weeks, they're releasing one of the like classic Star Wars films. So Star Wars was out for one week only uh, last week. Yeah, it must have been last week. And then they're doing Empire Strikes Back in a fortnight. Oof. If that doesn't sell out, there's something wrong with people. No, they're not. Like Star Wars was even fewer people in the theater than Tenet was. That's amazing. Anyway, yeah, yeah, crazy time. Indeed, Would I anyway, like Tenet, Dan? Uh, just getting back to Tenet. So there are people complaining about the sound mix, and I think that's totally fair enough. And this is a complaint that people often have with Christopher Nolan movies because sometimes it is very hard to hear what's going on. It's particularly a problem with this film in that there's a lot that you need to take on board to understand exactly what it is that you're watching and some of the plot sure. mechanics of it because you're not only watching a movie which is kind of like a... You know, when you watch a James Bond movie and Christopher Nolan's a person who is well known as wanting to make a James Bond movie, but he just hasn't had the opportunity yet. But you find quite a yeah. few of his films have James Bondish sort of moments that are sort of peppered into it because he kind of wants to exercise like that sort of uh, filmmaking. Uh, sure. So when you're watching some of them and particularly like the newish ones, you know how they're just like slightly more convoluted than they need to be? Yes. Yeah. Uh, this film definitely plays into that. Like, it's a bit convoluted in terms of its um, spy game, like the spycraft elements that exist in the film. Because the main character, and I haven't really talked about what it is, basically you've got a CIA agent who is um, badly hurt in the like, line of duty. I guess that's the way you can sort of uh, frame it. Uh, basically, he gets brought in to become like a sole CIA agent going in on like this mission that's going to save the world we find out like gradually that it's got something to do with uh, the manipulation of time and physics. And then the further and further you get into this film, the more that you actually realize that you can sort of travel through time and there are various elements of the movie. Now, I, 
I don't want to say anything more than that because there's one particular no, thing that fun. I'd like to say that pe when people hear that, they'll go, ah, that actually sounds really cool. But to reveal that aspect of it kind of destroys one of the really fun moments from the film. And I don't want to take that away from people. But just understand that everything that you kind of want from a time travel action spy movie, this film actually really delivers on in a really nice way. And essentially, because it's a Christopher Nolan film, it's about big screen spectacle. And there are things in this that I've never seen achieved in a film from a technical standpoint. Th there are elements of this movie that technically he does things that I've never seen achieved in a film before, both in terms of the actual technical ability to be able to bring that to the screen, as well as just, I guess, maybe the imagination to be able to make it work. And just on that alone, I was blown away. Like, there's just really yeah, cool right. things. And we've seen so many movies, like, you know, like, think about the number of genre films that we've seen up until this point, presenting all, all manner of, like, crazy far-out ideas and time and physics-bending moments. Just think about all of that and then think, well, when was the last time I was actually surprised by something? And, like, this film actually does it. And it's not a huge surprise watching the film because it is the sort of movie that you're there for. And it's a Christopher Nolan film, so it's not like it's just like a big sort of twist sort of thing coming out of nowhere. Like, you kind of know what you're up for. Uh, but even so, like, you're sort of sitting there and it's like, holy shit, I've never actually seen that. And just like the ability to be able to be surprised by spectacle again, I just think it's incredible. Absolutely. And it does uh, sound a lot more interesting than some of the reviews that I've scanned over that sort of don't even seem to be getting, don't seem to be giving it any credit for that kind of thing at all. And um, just sound confused, I think. I noticed this really interesting uh, look, thing I, where... I, I think it's totally fine to be confused because it is a confusing movie and I'm going to see it another two or three times. And even then, I'm not sure I'm going to get it entirely because you have to really wrap it... your brain around some stuff. Is it more confusing than Back to the Future Part 2? Look, that is a really good analogy, and I would like to discuss that with you if you see the movie. All right, cool. We'll go, go offline and but, I'll... But um, no, no, I'll I, I, I can say, Back to the Future 2, uh, if you think about the time travel mechanics of that film, they laid out really, really simply. And remember there's that scene where Doc Brown takes Marty, when they're in the alternate 1985, the one that's ruled by the uh, Biff Tannen, uh, Donald Trump-style, like, casino yes. mogul. <laughs> The one that was actually the just 20 years early. Yeah. So, like, if you think about this, that one scene where he goes to, like, a blackboard and he starts, like, talking about, like, the alternate timeline and, like, actually spells it out for both Marty and the viewer. Yeah. And because they actually show it, like, with a visual style across the screen and say, this is where you are, this is what's just happened, this is where we are right now, it really simply explains it. There is no scene like that that takes place within Tanner. <laughs> Right. You could use one. Yeah. And like, you could probably use one to understand what's going on, but also I think that would take away from some of the pleasures of it as well. Yeah. The Excellent. Last, All right, last thing I want to say before I wrap it up is that John David Washington, who's the main dude in it, like he's fantastic. Like he's in Black Klansman, which we mentioned in last week's podcast. Uh, he's the son of Denzel Washington. But like this is guy- the main the main guy in Black Klansman? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like, he's awesome. This guy, like in Black Klansman, like he exhibited that, you know, he could be the star of a movie. But in this, like legitimately, like I think this guy's a movie star. I was totally awesome. into him. Robert Patterson's in it, the upcoming new Batman. Now, Robert Patterson, I'm going to say, I don't think I've ever seen Robert Patterson in a movie before. So like he came on screen, I'm like, oh, this guy's actually a bit charismatic. 
And then at the end of the movie, I'm like, who was that guy? And it's like, oh, Rob Patterson. I've heard that name before. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki's a little bit wasted in the film. Like, I think she's a perfectly fine screen presence in it, but they don't really give her that much to do. But again, that's actually pretty common for the female leads in a lot of the Christopher Nolan films. Yeah, sure. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. But anyway, Tenet. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. sold anyway on Tenet. Yeah, definitely worth a look. It, it's confusing Mighty. and I think sort of deliberately so. That's all right. I'm a smart guy. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chris, can we go into something which is like just a bit more just pleasure center? and talk about the brand new Netflix docu-series, High Score. We didn't get the games before everyone else did, so we just had to plow through them as quick as possible because the calls started coming in as soon as the games were released. Counselors were playing blind with no strategy guides from game developers, so they had to get creative. The gameplay binders were packed with tips and tricks that were made entirely by hand. Maps, locations of secret power-ups, the works. Okay, Chris, what's the deal with this one? Um, High Score, the new Netflix documentary series about the evolution of video games, is uh, a program that's been made specifically for me uh, in order <laughs> yes. for me to indulge my nostalgic things. It's, it's. I, I often joke about how I hate being catered to. On this occasion, I've actually loved being catered to with this program. It is fantastic. It. Um, I think it does a really good job. There's a bunch of these Netflix docos that have popped up lately, like um, the, you know, the toys that made us and the movies that made us and these things that are very similar in the way that you enjoy them. But um, they're a little bit, you know, they're so over the top and kind of jokey and with terrible sound effects and uh, an amusing voiceover that they're kind of like, they dumb down really hard and mm. you know, it's great for little kids to be able to get into them and all that kind of stuff. But they, but you know that they're a little bit, uh, you know, they're, they're aiming pretty low. Whereas this is a little bit, it's a little bit higher. It still has a lot of those sort of fun elements in it, but I feel like it's sort of a bit more interested in actually telling the story and a bit more interested in threading all the various connected parts of how um, the video games kind of evolved. Yeah, see, I've you only agree? seen a few episodes of The Toys That Made Us, but like that seemed a little less egregious than some of the other similar series. And this show feels a lot more like The Toys That Made Us in that they focus on some of the real world people and the actual sort of tangible like just spongible moments that people have in their lives yeah and absolutely that connects, like, um, idea of yeah video gaming yeah and you know there's also there's the kind of the people that you would expect to see like um you know the creator of uh the creator of mario and uh, you know a bunch of people that you kind of always see in these sort of documentaries and you always see them get talked about but i really like the way it kind of does does a bit of a deep dive into some you know much lesser figures who are just sort of got a good story to tell or, or they're because they're involved i'd totally forgotten about the whole concept of having to call the game counselor hotline when you get stuck in a room in, in nintendo game and you can't get out but that is something that i definitely did as a 14 year old or whatever and it was really cool there's an episode where they talk heaps to the guy who did that job and um, he's obviously good talent and they've sort of, you know, they end up sort of using him to kind of narrate the whole, ep or not narrate, but um, put the story around him in that episode, which I thought was really, really cool. Yeah. So this is a six part series and it follows the birth of video games from being arcade game machines through to the early nineties, where you started seeing the shift from 2D to 3D computer games. So really it's taking it from pre-Atari through to Super Nintendo is basically the time frame that they're working on. And yeah, I wasn't sure. I hadn't yeah. read that. I wasn't sure if it was going to get to PlayStation, but I, uh, maybe that'll be Series 2. 
Yeah, and so I have to say, like, I've watched the first three episodes of this, and I enjoyed some of the more human stories in it. And like you said, I enjoyed some of the stories of people that aren't just your average, oh, this is the guy that created Mario, but really he's yeah. the guy that created game cartridges. Like, that's Yeah, yeah, a, that was a really cool little part. Yeah, and, like, that's a great story. And also talking about how the E.T. the Extraterrestrial Game, which is considered by many to be the worst game ever made, and from what I could see in this documentary, understandably so. But also, yeah. like, how did that game come about? Because the guy that created that game had also invented a whole bunch of games that, like, were of, like, high repute. So how do you go from making some of the most beloved games to making E.T. the Extraterrestrial? And this doco, like, within a couple of minutes, explains very succinctly how that came to be. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've heard a lot about that story, and especially, you know, there were people trying to archive... There were people trying to dig them up because they got buried... That which it didn't get into in that doco, but you know they got. I think there's a whole documentary about that ET game that there I've is. seen at some point. Yeah, and I remember talk, where they were talking about how they had to dig it up. You know, because all these to find all these game cartridges, stuff. the ones that they couldn't sell over the Christmas period that they were gunning for, uh, ended up being taken out to like some sort of desert area and just like dumped. Yeah, and and it was really um. So it was interesting hearing a sort of the that guy's. You, you often hear the the second half of that story, which was the game getting made and everyone hating it. But you didn't really hear that sort of first half very much, which was really cool. It made sense. The little stories about him chatting to George Lucas, I mean to Steven Spielberg, were really cool. And um, I I just enjoyed that whole. I I really enjoyed that whole thing. Um, I missed. I skipped the third one, which was about role the, players. Um, role players because i wasn't that i didn't have enough of a reference point really myself yeah no i had that same jump, problem and i tried watching it last night i just was not enjoying it yeah so i just jumped straight to the fourth one which was about um sega or sega coming into being and you know wanting to take on the um taking on the nintendo with the uh, sega genesis which was called the mega drive for reasons that i have no idea in australia but they um that was a really cool that's a really cool part of the story too kind of it's it's just so cynical in its um attacks on nintendo and how they marketed it and how they created sonic like and you know you can really they they really wanted went out there to just purely their business model was to destroy nintendo and of course they didn't do that but they did cut a massive chunk of it and i think slowed down nintendo's um kind of growth for a while but it was really interesting too that um one of the things they used to um you know kind of differentiate themselves from nintendo or to create a bigger audience was that they uh with sonic they wanted him to be a bit cooler you know and they wanted to attract young teens and not just the sort of the really young fan base because at the time the mario games were kind of um nintendo and the mario games were aimed at a really young age you know sort of like but i don't know eight to eleven or something like that is where they were doing all their marketing and that's how they were ang angling the films but what's really interesting uh, angling the games but what's really interesting is that they haven't really changed that i mean there's a lot more grown-up nintendo games these days but it was more kind of like i feel like it's more what's happened is that the people that grew up with those games at that age like me sort of stuck with nintendo the whole way through and you know have have kind of constantly have evolved as the games have evolved which i thought was really interesting whereas you know and this brand is still well and truly alive whereas but also, nintendo, as a developer. nintendo was something which is still geared towards like that sort of child in all of us like it's sort of yeah. at the moment where i think that if you look around at society you've got you and i perfectly happy watching a documentary series about like mining our nostalgia <laughs> for video games and playing mario back yeah. in the day but also, I think that people these days are more than happy to not necessarily look for, like, the cool sort of grown-up thing, but really are happy to dabble in something which is, like, a little bit sort of childish and, you know, isn't yeah, necessarily it's a, it's, as it's mature. Sort of, 
totally. And that perspective, I don't know, I thought was really interesting. About the documentary itself, did you sort of, um, I feel like it was kind of well paced and that it does a, you know, it it told you there was a lot of obvious stuff, but um, I, I kind of really liked the way it flowed and I feel like I'm going to enjoy watching the last couple of episodes. Yeah, so look, I've enjoyed it for the most part. I really liked in the second episode, it must have been, where they were talking to the marketing manager who was hired for Nintendo and she's talking about going to Japan and making, like, trying to work out how to create the Nintendo, I think it was called the Nintendo Magazine? Nintendo Power. Ninte- sorry, yeah, Nintendo Power. That's the name of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I read, like, you know. Totally. For Me years. Too, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and just talking about, like, just creating, like, the iconography of the magazine and translating it from a Japanese publication, because there was already a Nintendo Magazine over there, to how they had to create it for the, Australia, uh, for the US market. And the Australian one was very similar to the US one probably using most of the same content, I'd imagine. Uh, but yeah, like that was just kind of fascinating because it was like this sort of part of, sort of broader Nintendo culture. And I think of, if I was going to sort of have any sort of big complaints about this is that I know some of the more sort of quirky stories about Nintendo back at that sort of time period. And it would have been fun just to see something that was maybe just focused purely on Nintendo and maybe do a yeah. season on Nintendo, then do the season on Sega and maybe just do like the Atari season and just like find the various perspectives and give enough time to both because it just kind of feels like you're missing like elements. I absolutely agree. I feel like there's heaps more that could be said about Nintendo and um, and even in the way that it kind of bled into popular culture and especially those years where it was the where it was the number one thing. I recently tried to watch um, The Wiz with my young son who's Mario obsessed at the moment. Thoughts and based prayers. On, yeah, based on only having seen it um oh sorry the wizard isn't it yeah the wizard yeah um, not the wiz with diana ross and young that's Mark right the wiz is amazing don't get me confused <laughs> with the wiz um but yeah uh the wizard with uh fred savage and man that was that was hard going that is a ter- that is a terrible terrible film but my memories of watching it myself when it came out and because th- it because it came out right before the super mario brothers 3 game so it was basically this ad for super mario brothers 3 which is barely in the movie at all. Like there's barely any Nintendoing in the film at all. And, well, you know, it's amazing that they were able to kind of, you know, sell it as a Nintendo movie at the well, time. Well, because the entire film is leading up to them participating in a Nintendo gaming competition where they debuted Super Mario 3 for the world to see. And the most exciting thing of all being the Nintendo Power Glove. Of course, yeah. The Power Glove was in there as well for yeah. the first time. But also um, let's, but not, both of- let's not neglect the other star of that movie being a young Jenny Lewis before she became an indie superstar musician. That's right. Yes, indeed. Um, and but it, and Christian Slater, of course, yeah. is also Christian Slater is the older brother, which is, you know, as I was reading it back, I was like, man, this is going to be awesome to watch this again. And it was absolutely <laughs> not awesome. Yeah, it is But, it, you know, like... That's it's it's indicative of how big um, Nintendo was at the time that they were able to just like sacrifice this whole movie to try and you know get people excited about uh, thirty or about I don't know six minutes of gameplay probably appear in the whole two hour film, um, so you know they really were, were able to milk it at the time. But yeah, you you're dead right. I'd love to see more about Nintendo. Yeah, I guess maybe the other disappointment is that it does end with because uh, I think the last episode is about Star Fox, or at least Star Fox uh, maybe yeah, sort right. of uh, roll on it. And, like, I kind of want to know what happens with video gaming after that. Like, obviously, I mean, I know what happened. But, like, it just sort of seems like I I feel so manipulated by this show. But I'd kind of like it to reach a point where, like, the manipulation ends and it starts delving into things like they've created the framework for me to understand how the industry works. So, you know, how does the industry then get subverted when Nintendo stops being the cool thing 
circa about like 95 when the, you know, the Sonys of the world start getting a bit more involved. Yeah, that's it. It does set up for another second season. Like, I mean, there must be heaps of great stories around the PlayStation Xbox um, early days and the other little machines that came and went and didn't make much of a splash. So, yeah, hopefully there'll be more of it in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the episode about the Neo Geo? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, which I never played, I don't think. But if you've got those, um, yeah, if you've got the interest in those old video games, there is much joy to be mined out of this show, that's for sure. And even if you're just enjoying those kind of short form um, documentary series, I think it's done in a way that would be somewhat appealing to you if you weren't that interested in the subject matter. Yeah, I mean, I learned how Ms. Pac-Man came to be and it wasn't just the cynical marketing move that I thought it was. It was a really cool story. Those guys were really interesting and, you know, a, a, a very good uh, precursor to the kind of modern approach of, you know, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness of kind of, you know, the way that Spotify and various other big massive tech giants have recently come into being by just doing this thing that is technically illegal and Uber being the other one. And then um, just getting sort of doing it so well that you get drawn into the system. For a bit of a brief insight into my life, I found myself watching the scenes where they were talking about how Pac-Man was introduced because there was lots of games for boys, but they wanted something that was a bit more female orientated. And they didn't want something which was just about killing, but really they thought eating was something that they thought girls might be a bit more interested in. <laughs> yeah. And so Pac-Man was born out of that. And then they sort of have an insert shot where they talk about the sort of Pac-mania that took place. And obviously you've got like the song, but then they showed clips from the animated series. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what, of all the video game, like, um, video game culture of the time, like the Pac-Man cartoon series was something that I watched all the time. And I was really into that. <laughs> And then I thought, was I watching a cartoon for girls? And that was in my mind a little bit when I finished watching it and then flipped on to what I watched next, which was my beginning of my rewatch of the Gilmore Girls. Yeah, yeah. I knew and you were going to suddenly go I just realized, like, you know, it explains a lot. Well, All right, Chris, shall we move on? Please. <laughs> the world demands it. Hey, there is a brand new German series on Netflix called Biohackers. I made that with CRISPR, the gene-cutting tool with mega-awesome power. Oh god, I sound like a walking Wikipedia, sorry. But if you're interested, this is a great introductory read. I saw a mouse that might have been through that. Probably they've been doing it for years, but it does not make sense. With plants, it rules. Okay, so Chris, biohackers... There's a thing with uh, Netflix, obviously, where a couple of years ago if I said, hey, there's a brand new German series, I don't think most people would probably check it out. But these days on Netflix, I think people are just used to watching a lot of foreign language shows, usually totally. with the dubs on. Yeah. Do I put dubs on? Oh, no, I'm just saying like, usually, I mean, that's the default these days for Netflix. And I think people are just oh, watching right. a lot of foreign stuff that they don't quite realize is foreign for a few minutes or at all because they're busy looking at their phones and not really the screen. <laughs> they don't no notice the sync happening. Yeah. Um, I'm still, I love reading a movie. I love to have the subtitles on. Not because I'm like highbrow or anything, just because I find it a lot easier to follow. Actually, we had a period where when, you know, we had a, uh, as a parent, I'm just going to do one more of these, I promise. Oh no, oh, there'll be geez. a few more later on. Yeah, because the Frozen 2 conversation, go on. But um, no, you know, because you want to have the house nice and quiet when they're going to sleep and all that kind of stuff. So it went through a long period of having the subtitles on just all the time um, to read stuff and, you know, watch it late at night without disturbing anyone and found it really hard to switch them off, actually. Like it took a couple of years of, you know, just enjoying having the subtitles there. And, um, oh, look, I totally I get that. Like so my partner, she's a light sleeper, so she'll go to bed and she's like an early to bed person as well. So she'll go to bed and I'll be there with like the subtitles on and 
just trying not I to find wake. it like I definitely take in a lot more when I'm reading as well, which makes sense. But you know, it's yeah, I find it a very, um, I find it a really cool way to watch stuff most of the time. Anyway. Yeah, um, awkward biohackers in that the subtitles on screen because I had the subtitles on screen as well as the dub over the top, and <laughs> what they're saying in the subtitles doesn't necessarily quite match what they're saying on screen. <laughs> And you get that every so often, like it's, it's never like word for word, but sometimes complete like senses have totally different meanings and there's like a greater totally. depth happening in the subtitles than there is in the dub. But anyway, premise of biohackers is this, uh, this is the log line from IMDB, a fast paced thriller following medical student Mia, who discovers the use of highly advanced biohacking technology in her university town. I read that log line. I thought, that's kind of interesting. It's got the name Biohackers, so I kind of already feel like I know what this is going to be. And then I watched the trailer, and the trailer, like, the tone of it's a little bit weird in that it sort of seems like a cutesy, fun, like, young, like, late teens, early 20-something, like, uh, girls out on her own for the first time and getting involved in, like, the wacky hijinks happening with her university friends. But then you kind of get this sort of darker tone that takes place within the trailer as well. So I went into it with the assumption that it would be this. Uh, it starts out as a very sort of frothy thing, but then things just start getting a bit weird and gross and start becoming a bit more sort of body horror. Because the thing with biohacking, and I don't know if people are really aware of what biohacking is, like it's 2020, so I assume people are, but maybe not so much. Um, is it like those people that put the um, coral in their head so that they would grow horns? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that people do. So that was a thing like in the mid-90s, people started doing that. Yeah. And that's probably one of the first sort of biohacks that I ever really came across. Um, so you had that, but then there's other people who might do things like put like magnets underneath their fingers to help be able to like pick stuff up. Um, and then there's just like other things you can do with your body to make it a bit more, um, you know, flexible useful. and just, yeah, useful in the modern age. <laughs> there's a lot I could do to mine to make it more useful. Uh, for example, there's one scene in this where this girl's housemates ends up putting a... Um, uh, like the, uh, what do they call it? It's a, I'm trying to think of the name of the chip in your like bank card. Chip. But anyway, puts the chips uh, within his skin so that he can like just pay for like FPOS things just to yeah. have and go without having to get his card out. Or like get your watch out and, you know, tap against. Like any of that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so just sort of fun things like that. And there's like a scene really early in where she gets taken by her housemates to a rave and they give her like some eye drops and then suddenly like the world's like crazy colors and, you know, take a few dr like drugs and drink a bit. And then you're having like this amazing night out where, you know, your body is just like suddenly seeing things that it would not otherwise see. And like just stuff like that. I thought that's going to be the fun version of it. And then the film, the miniseries that goes on, it's like six episodes for the first season. will just subvert that and start getting darker and then things will just get more and more disgusting. That's what I thought was going to happen. That's what I was hoping was going to happen. The show is not really quite that at all. In that it sort of starts out that way, but then it just becomes really bland and really rote where there's very there's like one housemate she has who he's doing a lot of experiments on himself. And there is like one like really gross scene where he's sitting there after he's done some sort of, um, I, I can't remember exactly what he's trying to do, but he's made like an incision like into his chest and like he's got like just blood just like splurting out of him and she walks in and just like, you know, she tries to help him out and, you know, gets him back on his feet. And like that's as far as it ever goes because the actual sort of real biohacking that takes place, you find out is like her... Uh, incredibly well-regarded university professor is involved in some advanced biohacking 
stuff going on and it all becomes very sort of highbrow and it's about like playing with genetics as opposed to mm. playing around with bodies and actually like really sort of playing around with body horror. Like I was hoping for Cronenberg and instead yeah. I got like 90210 with a few gross things. That's funny because that's of course the first thing I thought of was, you know, Cronenberg stuff because it's yeah. disgusting and awesome. Um, Scanners, I mean, is amazing and there's so many, they're all great. Yeah, basically. But it's been a while since we've had like had something like that, and I thought yeah, a show totally. called Biohackers coming from Germany, like Germany likes playing around in the dark areas of the margins. Totally. Yeah, and like a lot of German TV has been pretty experimental recently, so I thought you know there's a great yeah, opportunity for this, and boy does this show not deliver. That's really interesting, and even the kind of the way it is pitched is very much like that. It, it appears to be that it's going to be um a, a, a challenging watch, but um. Yeah, that's disappointing. Yeah. Like, it's a very easy watch, and I don't really regret watching it, but I have to say, like, I hit about episode four or five, and I'm like, you know what? I'm hoping there's not a cliffhanger at the end of the season because I don't really want to come back for season two. Unfortunately, there is a cliffhanger. And <laughs> it's a good cliffhanger that. as well. I kind of want to see where it's going now, but <laughs> even so, like, the show, it just doesn't deliver on the promise. Uh, but even so, it's still, it's kind of good. Like, it's not good. It's watchable. That's that's the thing. Yeah, like yeah. you'll enjoy watching it, even though it's not really a good use of your time. <laughs> that sounds like every pretty much everything I do, Dan. So yeah, um, that sounds quite useful. Mm. Uh, the other thing I will say as a big sort of tick, and it's um, in in the positives. Uh, everyone's really cute and attractive and kind of fun. That's yeah. what that's TV. Like, that's yeah, it's just shameless, that's and I love TV that. Should be. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Chris, the podcast has been reaching this point now where we have to talk about the making of Frozen 2. It's not just that you're putting your work out there, but you're putting not finished work out there. It makes you really nervous because you can't go behind them being like, this part's going to be great once we have this. You know, we can't do that. So you're just having moments where you're cringing, you, um, you're listening for laughs, and if you don't get it in the place you want, you, you go, oh God, you know, so you really internalize the whole thing that can make you feel a little vulnerable. It's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> so this is a show called Into the Unknown, Making Frozen 2. This is one of two different shows that have cropped up on Disney Plus in the last couple of months, which go into the making of Disney Plus's two biggest properties, really. So you've got this one, Into the Unknown, Making Frozen 2, but then there's also one about the behind the scenes of The Mandalorian. Both <laughs> are series where they're like 40-minute episodes that go deep into the production of both of these. Chris, I obviously am never going to watch this, but tell me more. Okay. So um, the first thing that you have to understand is that, you know, Frozen is massive. Uh, people love Frozen. Little kids love Frozen. Uh, the, two the two films now are, you know, Broadway musicals, basically, um, but presented as animated films. It, it, you know, and a lot of all the Disney films have, have uh, music in them. Also, worth noting, you, are... you have a daughter. I do. I have a son and I have a daughter, and uh, yeah. they're also, both. Also, has your daughter seen this? Has she seen? Yes, Frozen? we went to. Has she seen Frozen? She, went and, she saw Frozen two at the cinema when she was about two years old and sat and watched the whole thing, um, which was just uh, which we were surprised at. But um, you know, there had been a lot of watching Frozen before that. So you know, I've I, I think I've even spoken on here about my issues with Frozen two, as far as you know, uh, it, there's a real overwhelming sense of Disney trying to be woke. Um, with the storyline and trying to pay some respects to the um, to the to the indigenous people 
of of uh, generic Scandinavia and the struggles that they may have. But really, because like um, the, f- the first one's very progressive in terms of like its gender construction, but you just well, think they went yeah. too far with the second one, or at least they're taking the right like direction. The, the, they both kind of have this veneer of like progressiveness on them, but it, ultimately they um, still kind of fall prey to the sort of this, all the all the same um, things that Disney always falls prey to, and the, you know, and the and it's kind of this thing where you've got these extremely privileged white people trying their best, I guess, to um, make a film that doesn't um, that that is more progressive in the day and age of Twitter. But you know, I, I feel I feel like on both counts they failed dismally to do that but that doesn't mean that they're not entertaining films so the other thing is that you know like i said they like broadway musicals in that um there's a lot of music and the music has been written by um this husband and wife couple for both films and the you know the music is as essential is, is part of the story and you know has been obviously crafted around that and so you've got this weird thing with these films where I think a lot more than a lot of the other big animated films, they're kind of auto-driven in that they have a, a pretty singular vision. And in, in this Making of Frozen 2, you can really see that the, the people that are um, responsible for that have really got a vision that kind of then they, you know, communicate to the thousands of people that are working on these movies to make to make it happen. Um, and then to, so to, to see that juxtaposed against this massive, massive production with, like I say, thousands of people... Um, but working behind them, you know, massive, the massive orchestra recording everything. You see, you, you go behind the scenes and see the... Um... So on the one hand, you've got this film that's, you know, made by these two people. And on the other hand, you've got this massive, massive production company behind it, Disney, the biggest company in the world, probably. And so it's it's really interesting to watch that juxtaposed against each other. But the really fascinating stuff, I think, is where you get into the kind of cult of Disney. And, you know, you see inside these Disney meetings, you see the very, um, the very sort of... Uh, cult-like way that the people that work for Disney refer to working for Disney, the way they talk about Disney, the way it's, you know, forefront of their minds is this idea of, of being, doing the best by Disney. And, and I, I guess what, you know, it's revealing in a way that certainly the, the people that are making the documentary aren't even aware of. And I'd say Disney itself isn't even aware of how kind of weird a lot of that looks. And it really reminds me of, I recently watched that um, Michael Jordan documentary series that I talked about on here as well, which was the ESPN um, documentary series. Can't remember the name of it. Yeah, I'm struggling to think of the name of it now as well. (laughs) It's like the biggest thing um, on the planet for about two weeks there. You know, this thing was widely, you know, people were really excited about the start and then it got widely condemned for being, well, not condemned, but um, it got a lot of criticism for like, oh, well, this is actually just an advertisement for Michael Jordan. You know, he's had the, he's had the final say on the card. He's had the, being able to decide what goes in it, what doesn't. Um, but in itself, The Last Dance, it was called. But in itself, uh, you know, that that in itself becomes revealing. And, and often people, when they're telling their own story, I think, and you get this in books all the time, but people don't know, when they're trying to put their best, uh, best face forward, they don't always know what that is themselves. So... Um, in this, in a very similar way, you know, I feel like this film, this this series, gives a lot of the sort of like more. I'm not going to say insidious, but just some of that kind of really uh, uh, self-serving idea that um, Disney is this is this uh, wonderful dream-making uh, institution that that can do no wrong, and then can that the people are all in servitude to, and they receive great benefit from being a part of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, because this is the show that is made by Disney for a Disney streaming service about Disney products. Yeah, so like you couldn't, you know, I've obviously got a really tight control over it and they've really wanted to tell 
the story how they see fit but yeah in doing that you do get these sort of revelations about how things work behind the scenes that aren't always you know aren't always that flattering i would argue to now, the disney company look i've only seen like just a couple of minutes of it it was while i was grabbing the sound clip so that we could play something at the beginning of the segment because <laughs> uh, like i've got no interest in frozen series so, like the likelihood of me sitting down to watch this is beyond slim to none but the thing i was actually kind of a little bit sort of interested in that I haven't seen the Mandalorian version of this and the concern that I had going into watching that, which I'm planning to do at some point, I just haven't yet, is that it kind of felt like it seemed like a, what they call an EPK, so an electronic press kit that stretched out over like a 40 minute episode. So, I mean, if you've like ever like checked out the special features on a DVD before, like people are really familiar with watching like the five to 10 minute like behind the scenes makings of, and they're never really particularly that in depth. Like there's never really any sort of surprises there. They usually sort of fairly sort of quick jumping, like edits taking yeah. place. Like there's no depth at all to the thing that you're consuming. But like when I was watching the clip and from what that sound clip actually came from, like it was actually, like it wasn't like it was a particularly long scene, but I kind of actually got something out of it where you're watching the creative sit around watching uh, like the parts of the movie that have been completed and at various um, stages throughout the production of the movie because it's all obviously computer animated there's sound being added in and mm. you've got lots of artists doing different elements of the um, computer animation like it's not like there's just one yeah, technician sure. working on like a second of it like obviously that happens but at the same time you've got other people who are layering over other bits of like computer effects on top of that um, and then you got sound and then you got like coloring and, you know, there's all sorts of um, work totally. that goes into any given moment. And so you've got people who actually have to sit down and assemble it. And then as they're assembling it and the unique thing about animation versus, and like particularly animation in 2020, where it's being constructed on the fly and it's not like cell animation by any means. Mm. It means that you can actually edit things on the fly as well. And there's the opportunity to be able to grow and expand stuff. And it was a fun moment where... Um, I don't know if she was the director, but it was a lady sitting in a chair who was bossing everyone around. Um, she said, <laughs> um, this scene here where people are being knocked around by wind, that's kind of interesting, but we need to see some lines representing wind because it doesn't quite make enough sense. And just like seeing a little moment like that sort of come alive on the screen, it's like, okay, I can kind of see where they really are constructing it. And it's not just, hey, here's the vision how this scene's going to operate, but really they are building on top of it and then building again and building again until they're happy with yeah. what the product looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of that great, there's a lot of great insight into that, especially making a big film, just little stuff that I wouldn't have thought of, even like, you know, the sound effects are the last thing to get locked. So basically the whole film's edited and ready to go. And then the sound, you know, there's Foley dudes doing sound stuff over the very final cut of the film. And then that's the last bit that gets sliced into the digital file before it gets sent off. Um, and just the, the, the sort of way that you know, like you say, I assume it's like the old days of animation where you want to have all that stuff sort of um, locked down and you don't get the opportunity to sort of re reshoot things from different angles, but you can totally do all of that these days. And, you know, they still had the, it was, it was a month out and the film's far from finished kind of thing, like a month out from the premiere. So there's this really sort of interesting um, explanation about the process of making one of these big um, digital animated films as well, which, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff I took for granted that was not true. And a lot of, like a lot of stuff that I just assumed was the way that it happened. It doesn't happen that way. And especially now that I guess that the, the final product is then de delivered as a digital file, you've got no processing and color treating and all that kind of crap that they would have had to do in the last 
as the last stage. Um, yeah, they, they, they certainly have a lot of flexibility to change stuff right the way through. There's, if you are a fan of Frozen 2, which I am, um, despite its shortcomings, you know, there's, a, there's some really cool stuff about how they got to the ending, which is w w really where my biggest criticisms come from the film of the way it ends and the sort of the way they deal with this half-assed um, dealing of, of taking the land of these indigenous peoples and, you know, throwing them out of it, basically. Um, but they sort of, you know, it was great to see that that's, that, that, that they were able to kind of keep changing the story and keep working on the ending a lot later into the piece than what I thought would, would be possible for something with this many people involved in a digital thing. So, yeah, like I think from an aspect of just watching something get made that's so massively budget, particular interest for me as a sound recording kind of enthusiast was, you know, seeing how these massive, um, like seeing the recording of the orchestra and the way they were cutting the, the vocals in and things like that, that are just, um, you know, that you'd never really see for anything on that scale before. So yeah, there was definitely some interesting technical stuff from that point of view as well, um, as well as the, um, the more overall picture of it. But yeah, it was much more, I mean, the bottom line is it was much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Um, it was much more, it had a lot more depth and a lot more angles and it was a lot more revealing about the sort of process of Disney and stuff than I was expecting. So for those reasons, I really wanted to talk about it on here because I think it's more than just that sort of, um, you know, it's definitely more than just well, like you say, an, elect an electronic press kit. Cause they have, you know, I, I can't imagine they have to convince too many people to watch frozen anymore. And it's not really serving that purpose. It's definitely more about, I think giving more people more value for their Disney plus subscription, right. Mm. As opposed to trying to get people to watch frozen too. And absolutely. So you haven't sold me on watching this, but you have sold me on actually making the efforts to go and watch the Mandalorian version. Because the thing I particularly want to see on that is that Jon Favreau has created this uh, bit of technology which is uh, working with both live-action actors as well as computer-animated stuff, where what they do is actually create a 3D version of the world that they're all performing in, and then mm -hmm. add the characters and actors into the scene. So effectively, mm. they've got everyone operating in a virtual reality environment. So you can actually see wow. the world that you've created before you're actually creating the world. It's really yeah, interesting. Cool. And I want to see Mando because I think they'll actually explain how that works. I've only heard about yeah. it, but I can't actually see it like actually in practice. So I'm very keen to see that. But Chris... What is the Mandalorian one? Because I couldn't find it on the um, Disney uh, Plus. It apparently exists. I'm not too sure off the top of my head. Something if that's all right. We'll yeah. figure it out. I'll figure it out later. But anyway, yes, that's the Disney plus Disney. Um, so that was called Into the Unknown, food. Making Frozen Into food. the Unknown. Indeed. Chris Yates, I think this is the end of the mm -hmm. podcast. Um, I think so. As always, I like to let people know. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you might also like the daily newsletter that comes out. You can find that at alwayswebewatching.com. Uh, we've got this podcast. If you like it and your platform that you like using supports leaving reviews, you should maybe do that so other people can enjoy the show. And I'm sure they will enjoy it. Chris, For sure. you're not on social media, but you are leading a uh, rapidly of like expanding movement called QAnon. Uh, so people can probably find you in the appropriate places <laughs> there. Stop making that joke. That's a terrible joke. I don't deserve that. You would say that. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I don't, no, I'm not on anything. Don't try and find me. I'm hiding. Yeah. You know who does that? <laughs> Q. <laughs> anyway, folks, you can find me on social media at the Dan Barrett. Cause look, I am who I say I am. It's true. <laughs> this here, it's been always be watching. We'll be back next week. Same podcast time, same podcast channel. <laughs> <laughs>